This recording is a service of the Allen County Public Library's audio reading service. It is specifically designed for and directed to people who have visual, physical, learning, or language challenges to reading traditional printed materials. Welcome to The Atlantic, the historic magazine that offers a unique editorial view on the arts, politics, and current events. Catch up on the important news happening in the world around you. The Atlantic, found only here on your audio reading service. Welcome. This is The Atlantic, and I'm your reader, Susan, with the audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Today I will be reading from the January-February issue of The Atlantic, and I will begin with an article under Culture and Critics and Books, What Does the Working Class Really Want? Vying for the support of a multiracial working-class coalition, neither Democrats nor Republicans are focusing on the crucial question by George Packer. Political partisans are always dreaming of final victories. Each election raises the hope of realignment, a convergence of issues and demographics and personalities that will deliver a lock on power to one side or the other. In my lifetime, at least five permanent majorities have come and gone. President Lyndon B. Johnson's landslide triumph over Barry Goldwater in 1964 seemed to ratify the post-war liberal consensus and doom the Republican Party to irrelevance. Until, four years later, Richard Nixon's narrow win augured an emerging Republican majority, the title of a book by his advisor, Kevin Phillips, based in the white suburban sunbelt. In 1976, Jimmy Carter heralded a winning, winning interracial politics called the Carter Coalition, which pre- proved even shorter-lived than his presidency. With Ronald Reagan, the conservative ascendancy really did seem perpetual. After the Republican victory in the 2002 midterm elections, George W. Bush's operative, Karl Rove, floated the idea of a majority lasting a generation or two. But around the same time, the writers John B. Judas and Rui Teixeira published The Emerging Democratic Majority, which predicted a decades-long advantage for the party of educated professionals, single women, younger voters, and the coming minority majority. The embodiment of their thesis soon appeared in Barack Obama, only to be followed by Donald Trump and the revenge of the white working class, a large plurality that has refused to fade away. Recent American history has been hard on would-be realigners. The two parties are playing one of the longest deuce games since the founding. Even with the structural distortion of the Senate and the Electoral College favoring Republicans, the American people remain closely divided. The Democratic presidential candidate has won seven of the last eight popular votes, while the national vote for the House of Representatives keeps swinging back and forth between the parties. Stymied by a sense of stalemate, both now indulge in a form of magical thinking. Neither side believes in the legitimacy of the other. Each assumes that the voters agree and will soon sweep it into power. So the result of every election comes as a shock to the loser, who settles on explanations that have nothing to do with the popular will, foreigner interference, fraudulent ballots, viral disinformation, a widespread conspiracy to cheat. The Republican Party tries to hold on to power by anti-democratic means. The Electoral College, the filibuster, grotesquely gerrymandered legislatures, even violence. The Democratic Party pursues a majority by demography, targeting an array of identity groups and assuming that their positions on issues will be predictably monolithic. The latter is a mistake. The former is a threat to democracy. Both are ways to escape the long, hard grind of organized persuasion that is politics. Two other jarring features defined our age of deadlock. One is a radical shift in the two-party center of gravity. The signature of elections today is the class divide called education polarization. In 2020, Joe Biden won by claiming a majority of college-educated white voters, the backbone of the old Republican Party. Trump, with a lock on the white working class, lost despite making gains among non-white, non-college-educated voters. 
yesterday's most reliable Democrats. Meanwhile, on the political stage, cultural and social issues have eclipsed economic issues, even as every facet of American life, whether income or mortality rates, grow less equal and more divided by class. These two trends are obviously related, and they have a history. From the late 1970s until very recently, the brains and dollars behind both parties supported versions of neoliberal economics, one hard-edged and friendly to old-line corporate interests such as the oil industry, the other gentler and oriented toward the financial and technology sectors. This consensus left the battleground open to cultural welfare. The educated professionals who dominate the country's progressive party have long cared less about unions, wages, and monopoly power than about race, gender, and the environment. In the summer of 2020, millions of young people did not come out of isolation to protest the plight of meatpackers laboring in COVID-ridden processing plants. They were outraged by a police killing, and they called for a racial, racial reckoning a revolution in consciousness that ended up having little effect on the lives of the poor and oppressed. For their part, Republicans have spoken the traditionalist language of the working class ever since Nixon's silent majority. Trump dropped the mantra of low taxes and deregulation that used to excite the party when it was more upscale and directed his message to a base that votes on issues such as crime, immigration, and what it means to be an American. More recently, Republican candidates have turned to anti-woke rhetoric. In losing its voice as the champion of workers, the Democratic Party lost many of the workers themselves, and during the past half-century, the two parties have nearly switched electorates. This remapping helps explain the outpouring of new books that pay political attention to those overlooked Americans of all races who lack a college degree, many employed in jobs that pay by the hour factory workers, home health aides, delivery drivers, preschool teachers, hairdressers, restaurant servers, farm laborers, and cashiers. During the pandemic, they were called essential workers. Now they've been discovered to hold the key to power, giving rise to yet another round of partisan dreaming of realignment, this time hinging on the working class. But these Americans won't benefit from their new status as essential voters until the parties spend less effort coming up with what they think the working class wants to hear and more effort actually delivering what it wants and needs. The economic decline and political migration of the American working class, receiving the most compelling treatment in Ours Was the Shining Future, the Story of the American Dream, by the New York Times writer David Leonhardt. He describes the rise and fall from the New Deal to the present of what he calls democratic capitalism, not a neutral phrase, but a positive term for a mixed economy that benefits the many, not just the few. By now, the story of growing inequality and declining mobility is familiar from the work of Thomas Piketty, Gary Kirstel, Raj Chetty, and other scholars. Leonhardt has a gift for synthesizing complex trends and data in straightforward language and persuasive arguments whose rationality doesn't fully mute an undertone of indignation. He appreciates the power of stories and weaves obscure but telling events and people into his larger narrative. A 1934 strike in the Minneapolis coal yards that showed the political potential of worker solidarity. The mid-century businessman Paul Hoffman, who argued to members of his own class that they would benefit from a prosperous working class. The pioneering computer programmer and Navy officer Grace Hopper, who saw the economic benefits of military spending on technological research. An economy that gives most people the chance for a decent life doesn't arise by accident or through impersonal forces. It has to be created. And Leonhardt identifies three agents, political action, such as union organizing, that gives power to the have-nots, a civic ethos that restrains the greed of the haves and public spending on people, infrastructure, and ideas, a form of short-term sacrifice, an optimistic bet on what the future can bring. 
All three, power, culture, and investment, combined in the post-war decades to transform the American working class into the largest and richest middle class in history. Black Americans, even while enduring official discrimination and racist violence, closed the gap in pay and life expectancy with white Americans. Progress, Leonhardt writes, that reflected class-based changes more than explicitly race-based changes. In other words, the right of workers to form unions, an increase in expanded federal minimum wage, and a steeply progressive tax code that funded good schools all reduced racial equality by reducing economic inequality. But after the 1960s, the economy's growth slowed, and the balance of power among the classes grew lopsided. American life became stratified. Wealth flowed upward to the few, unions withered, and public goods such as schools starved. In their rush to cash in, elites knocked over taboos that had once restrained the worst extreme of greed. Metropoles prospered and industrial regions decayed. Despite the end of Jim Crow and the growth of a black professional class, the gap between black and white Americans began to widen again as the country's top 10% pulled away from the rest. This economic analysis comes with a political argument that will not be welcomed by many progressives. Leonhardt places blame for the decline of the American dream where it belongs, on free market intellectuals, right-wing politicians, corporate money. But he also points to the short-sighted complacency of union leaders and, even more, the changing values and interests of well-educated, comfortable Democrats. Beginning in the early 70s, they dropped concern about bread-and-butter issues for more compelling causes. The environment, peace, consumer protection, abortion, identity group rights. The later labor movement lost interest in social justice, and progressive politicians lost interest in the working class. Neither George Meany nor George McGovern sang from the New Deal songbook. After the 60s, the country no longer had a mass movement centered on lifting most Americans' living standards. Why did the white working class abandon the party that had been its champion? In the standard progressive telling, Leonhardt writes, the explanation for this political shift is race. Race had a lot to do with it, and Leonhardt affirms that Democrats' embrace of the black freedom movement in the 60s, followed by white backlash, exploited by Republicans with their Southern strategy, and persistent racism is a major cause. But the progressive telling falls short on three counts. It's morally self-flattering and self-exonerating. It's politically self-defeating. Accusing voters of racism, even if deserved, is not the way to convince them of anything. And it fails to explain too many recent political trends. For example, nearly all white West Virginia remained mostly Democratic decades after the passage of the Civil Rights Act and only turned indelibly red in 2000. According to one estimate, almost a quarter of the working-class white voters who gave Trump the presidency in 2016 had voted for a black president only a few years earlier. The stark polarization of the current college-educated and non-college-educated white electorate shows the key role of class. And what are we to make of an openly bigoted president running for a second term and increasing his share of the black and Latino vote? Leonhardt's subtler account is rooted in the working class's growing cultural and economic alienization from a democratic party ever more dominated by elites and activists and out of touch on the issues that hurt less affluent Americans most, especially crime, trade, and immigration. The financial crises of 2008 was a pivotal event, leaving large numbers of Americans with the sense that the country's upper classes were playing a dirty game at the expense of the rest. That fall, I reported on the presidential campaign in a dying coal town in Appalachian, Ohio. To my surprise, its white residents were giving Obama Obama a close hearing, and he ended up doing better in the region than John Kerry had. But at a local party gathering, an older white man told me that neither party had done anything to reverse the decline of his town and that he would no longer vote Democratic for one reason, illegal immigration. 
I listened politely and discounted his grievance. I didn't see any undocumented immigrants in Gloucester, Ohio. Why did he care so much? Leonhardt provides an answer. In a comprehensive analysis, he shows that the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, which liberal politicians sold as non-discriminatory but still restrictive, opened the gates to mass immigration. The result put downward pressure on wages at the lower end of the economy. Again, racial resentment partly explains hostility to large-scale immigration. But Leonhardt shows the rapid demographic change can erode the social bonds that make collective efforts for greater equality possible. Low immigration numbers in the mid-1900s improved the lives of recent immigrants by fostering a stronger safety net for everybody. As Democrats were reminded in 2022's midterms, immigration is less popular among working-class Americans of all race than among college graduates. The mayor of my very progressive city, a son of the black working class, recently sounded like that working class white ex-Democrat in Ohio when he warned that the arrival of more than 100,000 migrants will destroy New York. These positions reflect class differences in approaches to morality. Drawing on social science research, Leonhardt distinguishes between universal values such as fairness, and compassion, which matters more among educated professionals and communal values such as order, tradition, and loyalty, which count more lower down the class ladder. It shouldn't be surprising that working-class Americans of color sympathize with migrants but don't necessarily want an open border, that they fear crime at least as much as police misconduct. But their views confound progressives, who see these issues through the almost metaphysical lens of group identity, the belief that we think inside lines of race, gender, and sexuality, that these accidental and immutable traits dictate our politics. This worldview provided a sense of meaning to a generation that came of age after 2008, amid upheaval and disillusionment. Because the new progressivism flourished among younger, educated Americans who lived online, its cultural reach was disproportionate, making rapid inroads in universities, schools, media, the arts, philanthropy. But its believers badly overplayed their hand, giving Republicans easy wins and driving away ordinary Democrats. Americans remain a wildly diverse, individualistic, aspirational people with rising rates of mixed marriages, residential integration, and immigration from all over the world. Any rigid politics of identity, whether the left's obsession with marginalized communities or its sinister opposite in the reactionary paranoia of white replacement theory, is bound to shatter against the realities of American life. Identity politics has been a feverish interlude following the demise of the neoliberal consensus that prevailed from Reagan to Obama. What will take its place? Leonhardt hopes for a Democratic Party that learns how not to alienate the nearly two-thirds of Americans without a college degree. He believes that education can be a force for upward mobility, but that the current version of meritocracy, built in advantage at the top, under funding below, has created a highly educated aristocracy. He advises a renewed emphasis on economic populism, a hard line on equal rights for all but reasonable compromise on other controversial social issues, and a general attitude of respect. His hero is the martyred Robert F. Kennedy, whose 1968 presidential campaign was the last to unite working-class Americans of all colors. A version of the same argument with less historical depth and feeling but more charts and polemies can be found in John B. Judas and Rui Teixeira's Where Have All the Democrats Gone? The Soul of the Party in the Age of Extremes. They have been explaining their earlier book's thesis for two decades, even as the majority of its title keeps failing to emerge. Now they diagnose their error. What's been happening in the last decade is a defection, pure and simple, of working-class voters. That's something that we really didn't anticipate. 
Like Leonhardt, they called on Democrats to embrace New Deal-style economic liberalism, but not Green New Deal-style socialism, and to reject today's post-60s version of social liberalism, which is tantamount to cultural radicalism. In a series of scathing chapters, they show how far left the Democrat shadow party of activists, donors, and journalists has moved in the past 20 years on immigration, race, gender, and climate. The authors want to return to the party's cultural centrism of the 90s. Instead of decriminalizing the border, which most 2020 Democratic presidential candidates advocated, they called for tighter border security, enforcement of laws that prohibit hiring undocumented immigrants, and a way for those already here to become citizens. They showed that middle ground policies like these and others, the pursuit of racial equality that focuses on expanding opportunity for individuals, not equity of group outcomes, support for equal rights for trans Americans without insisting on a gender ideology that denies biological sex, remain major views, including among non-white Americans. Judas and Tasharia are less persuasive on climate change. Although their graduate Gradualism might be political helpful to Democrats. The country and the planet will be at the mercy of extreme weather that's indifferent to such messaging. Joshua Green's fast-paced, sober yet hopeful, The Rebels, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the struggle for a new American politics, argues that a democratic renewal is already underway. Like Leonhardt, Judas, and Texaria, Green traces the Democrats' estrangement from working Americans back to the 70s. He begins his story with a moment in 1978 when Jimmy Carter abandoned unions for Wall Street. The narrative reaches a climax in 2008 when the financial crises destroyed home values and retirement savings, while taxpayer dollars rescued the banks that had triggered it convincing large numbers of Americans that the system was rigged by financiers and politicians. Because of policy choices by the Obama administration, Democrats' last spasm of neoliberalism, much of the blame fell on the former party of the common people. Yet out of the wreckage rose a new group of Democratic stars who sounded like their New Deal predecessors, many of whom were every bit as radical. Taking aim at corporate elites, Green's protagonists went to increase economic equality through worker power and state intervention. Though Sanders and Warren failed as presidential candidates, Green argues that their populism transformed the party, including the formerly moderate Joe Biden, who has pushed a remarkably ambitious legislative agenda with working class interest at its center. Green is a first-time journalist, but his book suffers from a blind spot. It ignores the role of culture in the party's struggle with the working class. His analysis omits half the story until the 2016 election when he acknowledges Trump reshuffled Democratic priorities. As he moved cultural issues to the center of national political conflict, race, gender, and immigration eclipsed populist economies as the focus of the liberal insurgency. In the face of Trump's bigotry, Democrats felt compelled to adopt the maximalist positions of activists, assuming that these would align the party with the groups on the receiving end of Trump's ugliest barbs, such as Latino immigrants. Instead, the party's working class losses began to extend beyond white voters. Green's answer is to double down on economic populism. Rather than fear the Republicans' culture wars or respond to them by radicalizing policies that benefit everyone, Democrats should take the opportunity to reestablish the party as serving the interest of working people of every race and ethnicity. None of these books offers a shortcut to a new Democratic majority. The erosion of working-class support is too old and too severe to be easily reversed. In fact, it's the Republican pollster Patrick Ruffini in Party of the People inside the multiracial populist coalition remaking the GOP who imagines a coming realignment for Republicans. Ruffini can't resist making the case that in addition to transforming the party, this coalition could become the next permanent majority. 
To do so, he breezes through some of the same history and reaches a similar conclusion. Democrats have fallen into a cosmopolitan trap, losing their hold on a key constituency in the process. Ruffini's most original contribution is to apply close statistical analysis to the past few election cycles as he builds his case for a Republican multiracial coalition. He supplies strong evidence of the moderate social views of most black, Latino, and Asian American voters. On that basis, Ruffini doesn't think Democrats can win back their lost supporters just by changing the subject to class. Democrats may calculate that simply by focusing on economic issues. They can keep cultural issues from eating into their base, but they're wrong, he writes. When voters' economic views and social views are in conflict, one's social stances more often drive voting behavior. Cultural divides are what voters vote on even if politicians don't talk about them. Ruffini offers no data to support this conclusion, but it underpins his counsel for a politician like Biden. Never mind his legislative accomplishments that benefit the working class, what he really needs, Ruffini advises in political operative mode, is a hard pivot against the cultural left. He seems to have in mind a sister-soldier moment to neutralize Republican attacks. Though Ruffini doesn't spend much time on economic policy, it's worth noting that a few high-profile Republicans have recently discovered that monopolistic corporations can be oppressors, that capitalism tears communities apart. Senators Josh Hawley of Missouri and Marco Rubio of Florida, as well as other politicians, limit this insight to their partisan enemies in Silicon Valley. But a few conservative writers, such as Sora Bamari, the author of Tyranny, Inc., How Private Power Crushed American Liberty and What to Do About It, are open to ideas of social democracy. This internal party battle between the old libertarians and the new egalitarians doesn't seem to interest Ruffini. Oddly, given his populist ambitions, he remains unmoved by the anti-corporate critique. Nor does he have much to say about the Republican Party's descent with Trump into authoritarian nihilism. Ruffini's formative years as a professional Republican came during the George W. Bush presidency, and his thinking hasn't kept up with the Americas of Fentanyl and Matt Gatz. The populist future of Ruffini's desires is a wholesome mixture of culturally conservative, pro-capitalist families and low taxes. His commonplace majority would combine white people who didn't graduate from college and non-white people of all classes, because the education divide makes a much bigger difference in the attitudes of whites than it does among non-whites. It sounds like a twist on the Judas Texeria emerging majority of two decades ago. Demography is destiny seduces realigners on both sides. Ruffini recognizes that Republicans are a long way from attractive enough non-white voters to achieve his majority. But, he argues, if the party battles job discrimination based on a college degree, makes voting Republicans socially acceptable among black Americans, and apologizes for the Southern strategy, his goal could be realized by 2036. By then, the Democratic Party would presumably be a pious rump of overeducated white people demanding open borders and anti-racist math. These writers are all trying to solve a puzzle. One party supports union, the, the child tax credit, and some form of universal health care, while the other party does everything in its power to defeat them. One president passed major legislation to renew manufacturing and rebuild infrastructure, while his predecessor cut taxes on the rich and corporations. Yet polls since 2016 have shown Republicans closing the gap with Democrats on which party is perceived to care more about poor Americans, middle-class Americans, and people like me. During these years, the energy on the left has been fueled by an identity politics that resisted Trump and became the orthodoxy of educated progressives with its own daunting lexicon. Many Democrats fell silent out of fear or shame or confusion. 
now encouraged perhaps by the excesses and failures of a professional class social justice movement and by the relative success of Biden's pro-worker agenda, they seem to be finding their voice. Judas and Techeria cite polling data from Wisconsin and Massachusetts as evidence that Americans are less divided on cultural issues than activists on both sides, who benefit by stroking division would like. If you look at the country's voters and put aside the culture wars, what you find are genuine differences between the party's voters over economic issues. The real disagreements have to do with taxation, regulation, health care, and the larger problem of inequality. Democrats' way forward seems obvious. Emphasize differences on economies by turning left. Mute differences on culture by tacking to the middle. If the party can free itself from the money interests of Wall Street and Silicon Valley and the cultural radicalism of campus and social media, it might start to win in red states. I want Leonhardt, Judas, Texaria, and Green to be right. Having long held the same views, I'm an ideal audience for these books and other new ones making related arguments, such as Yanka Monk's The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time, Susan Neiman's Left is Not Woke, and Frederick DeBoer's How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement. Yet the solutions that some of them propose for the Democrats' working-class problem leave me with a worrying skepticism. In an age of shredded social bonds and deep distrust of institutions, especially the federal government, we can't go back to New Deal economies. If Rafini is right, the culture wars aren't easily put aside. Guns and religion, in Obama's unfortunate phrase, are genuinely held values, not just proxies for economic grievance. Conservative politicians manipulate them, but they aren't inauthentic. Race and gender are more important categories than class for millions of Americans, especially younger ones. Illegal immigration legitimately vexes citizens living precarious lives. Social issues aren't manufactured by power-hungry politicians to divide the masses. They matter. That's why they're so polarizing. The working class is immense, varied, and not all that amenable to being led. It's more atomized, more independent-minded, more conspiracy-minded and cynical than it was a couple of generations ago. Although unions are gaining popularity and energy, only a tenth of workers belong to one. Abandoned to an unfair economy while the rich freely break the rules, bombarded with images of fame and wealth, awash in work in drugs, working-class Americans are less likely to identify with underdogs like Rocky and Norma Ray or the defeated heroes of Springsteen songs than to admire celebrities who pursue power for its own sake, none more so than Trump. The argument over which matters more, economics or culture, may obsess the political class, but Americans living paycheck to paycheck, ill-served by decades of financial neglect and polarizing culture wars, can't easily separate the two. All of it, wages, migrants, police, guns, classrooms, trade, the price of gas, the meaning of the flag, can be a source of chaos or of dignity. The real question is this, can our politics in its current state deliver hard-pressed Americans greater stability and independence, or will it only inflict more disruption and pain? The working class isn't a puzzle whose solution comes with a prize. It isn't a means to the end of realignment and long-term power. It is a constituency comprising half the country whose thriving is necessary for the good of the whole. George Packer is a staff writer at The Atlantic. Half of the January-February 2024 issue of The Atlantic is small articles written by individual authors on the topic of if Trump wins again. The following two are part of that series. When Science Becomes a Slogan by Sarah Zhang. The President of the United States cannot control the trajectory of a hurricane, but he can, we learned in 2019, 
force the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to endorse a trajectory that he invented. Thus went Sharpiegate, the brief episode that began when Donald Trump tweeted a warning about Hurricane Dorian's danger to several states. It was one of his more anodyne tweets, but he erroneously included Alabama. He doubled down when questioned, producing as proof a NOAA forecast altered with what suspiciously looked like a Sharpie. When this failed to quiet criticism, he strong-armed the agency into a statement that affirmed his tweet. By then, Dorian was already making landfall nowhere near Alabama. But so what? Even if Trump could not bend reality, he found that he could bend the federal bureaucracy to his lies. Given another four years in the White House, he will certainly do so again and again. When science gets in his way, Trump is happy to attack or distort it or block it altogether. His administration kicks scientists off EPA advisory panels, replacing them with allies who question the need to regulate smog and greenhouse gases. It canceled a $1 million study on the risk of mountaintop removal coal mining. It stopped funding children's health concerns that studied the impact of pollution. The pandemic, of course, is where Trump's willful and wishful ignorance turned the most deadly. Even as privately even as he privately acknowledged the danger of the novel coronavirus in February 2020, he publicly proclaimed that it would go away as the weather warmed. When that didn't happen, Trump tried new ways to downplay the virus's threat. He promoted miracle cures, first hydroxychloroquine and then convalescent plasma, diverting resources to drugs that did nothing against the virus. He mocked masks. When the vaccines finally arrived, he endorsed only half-heartedly what should have been his administration's crowning scientific achievement, because admitting that the shots were a big deal would have meant admitting that the virus was a big deal. During his presidency, Trump's so-called war on science set off existential fears that he would single-handedly destroy trust in science itself. This adage is not borne out in polling data, at least not quite in that way. Confidence in scientists was as high as ever during the Trump administration. If anything, it increased. The percentage of Americans who professed fair or great deal of confidence in science climbed from 76 to 87 percent from 2016 to 2020, according to the Pew Research Center, the same period in which Trump was retconning hurricane forecasts and stoking COVID denialism. But this Upswing conceals a sharp polarization. Republicans lost confidence in the scientific community under Trump, while the Democrats gained it. And those two trends appeared to reinforce each other. As conservatives ditched maths and refused vaccines, liberals enthusiastically flocked to them. They populated their lawns with, in this house we believe, science which declared that science is real alongside Black Lives Matter and no human is illegal. Even before the pandemic, they turned out in droves for the March for Science in April 2017, which, while ostensibly nonpartisan, was inspired by the Women's March in January of that year and displayed nerdy slogans plainly directed against Trump, such as, Science Cures Alternative Facts. As liberals mix science and politics, conservatives recoiled. The March for Science, according to one study, made conservatives' attitudes towards science more negative. And after the prestigious journal Nature endorsed Joe Biden in the 2020 election, the only effects, another study found, were to make Trump supporters more distrustful of scientists and of information published in Nature. The journal ran an editorial acknowledging the study, but stood by its endorsement anyway because silence was not an option. In other words, nature also doubled down. Trump has a preternatural ability to politicize everything through his actions and the reactions they provoke, and science proved no exception. A second Trump administration would likely revive the crackdown on environmental science that characterized the first and is now hard to imagine Trump lending weight to vaccination or support to the CDC. 
He could also pressure the federal bureaucracy to target areas of science policy that have become politically salient since 2020, such as the regulation of abortion pills and the use of fetal tissue in research. The more abiding danger might be the continued transmutation of support for scientific study and findings, which wasn't always so strongly associated with one party, into a cast-iron tribal belief. A re-elected Trump would continue to attack any science that stands in the way of his agenda, and he would also likely provoke his liberal opponents into still more full-throated defenses of science, including clumsy and overreaching ones. It would be a mistake as well for liberals to cling too tightly to science as the ultimate arbitrator of policy. Closing schools for COVID, for example, came with genuinely difficult trade-offs in this uncertain days of March 2020. Cutting off sources of viral transmission also meant cutting kids off from free lunches, socialization, reporting of child abuse, not to mention learning. But some of the bluest cities kept schools closed well into 2021, even as it became clearer that these other costs were steep. The upshot of Trump's polarization of science is bad for everyone. The early days of the coronavirus were, despite everything that came after, a time of remarkable social cohesion. COVID attitudes had not yet hardened along partisan lines, and Americans, by and large, stayed home at first. We followed social distancing guidelines. We successfully flattened the curve, at least for a time. In another crisis, another hurricane, another pandemic, we will again have to rely on one another. But how can we if we cannot even agree on the same reality? Sarah Zhang is a staff writer at The Atlantic. She was a Livingston Award finalist in 2021 for her reporting on Down syndrome. Continuing with articles on If Trump Wins Again, We Have Corruption Unbound by Franklin Foer. In the annals of government ethics, the year 2017 exists in a bygone era. That September, Donald Trump's Secretary of Health and Human Services, Tom Price, resigned in disgrace. His unforgivable sin was chartering private jets funded by taxpayers when he just as easily could have flown commercial. Compared with the abuse of powers in the years that followed, the transgression was relatively picayune. But that early moment, even Trump felt obliged to join the criticism of Price. During Trump's first month as president, it wasn't yet clear how much concentrated corruption the nation or his own party would tolerate, which is why Trump was compelled to dispose of the occasional cabinet secretary. Yet nearly everything about Trump's history in real estate, where he greased palms and bullied officials, suggested that he regarded the government as a lucrative instrument for his own gain. A week and a half before taking office, he held a press conference in front of towering piles of file folders, theatrically positioned to suggest rigorous legal analysis, and announced that he would not divest himself of his commercial interest. Instead, he became the first modern commander-in-chief to profit from a global network of businesses, branded in gilded letters blaring his own name. It didn't happen all at once. Trump spent the early days of his presidency testing boundaries. He used his bully pulpit to unabashedly promote his real estate portfolio. His properties charged the Secret Service exorbitant rates, as much as $1,185 a night, per a House Oversight Committee report, for housing agents when Trump or his family members visited. By the time Trump and his cronies left the White House, they had slowly erased any compunction, both within the Republican Party and outside it, about their corruption. They left power having compiled a playbook for exploiting public office for private gain. That know-how, that confidence in their own impunity, that savvy understanding of how to profitably deal with malignant interest will inevitably be applied to plans for a second term. If the first Trump presidency was, for the most part, an improvised exercise in petty corruption, a second would likely consist of systemic abuse of the government. There's a term to describe that sort of regime that might emerge on the other side, a mafia state. 
That term was popularized by Belint Bagyar, a Hungarian socialist and a dissident during communist times. He wanted to capture the kleptocracy emerging in his country, which was far more sophisticated than other recent examples of plunder. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban didn't need to rely on brute force. He operated with the legitimacy that comes from electoral victories, and he justified the enrichment of his inner circle in carefully crafted legalisms. His abuses of office were so deftly executed that Hungary remains a member of the European Union and a magnet for multinational corporations. At the center of Orban's mafia state is a system of patronage. When he finally won consolidated control of the government in 2010, he purged the nation's civil service, a bloodless liquidation, as Magyar describes the tactic. In place of professional and experts, Orban installed party loyalists. This wasn't a superficial shuffling of his cabinet, but a comprehensive remaking of the nation's public sphere. It is testimony to the thoroughness of his conquest that his apparatchiks took control of the Hungarian Chess Federation and a state-funded project to develop dental tourism. The party loyalist Orban appointed became the capos of his crime family. Their job was to reward its friends by sharing the spoils of government contracts and to punish its vocal critics with tax audits and denial of employment. The loyalists constituted, in Magyar's more memorable phrase, an organized upper world. The goal of the apparatus was to protect the apparatus. A small inner circle around Orban guarded the spectacular wealth accrued through contracts to build infrastructure and the leasing of government-owned land on highly favorable terms. By 2017, a former gas line repairman from Orban's home village had ascended to number eight on Forbes' list of the richest Hungarians. Orban's system is impressively sturdy. His loyalists need their patron to remain in power so that they can continue to enjoy their own ill-gotten gains. In pursuit of that goal, they have helped him slowly and subtly eliminate potential obstacles to his mafia state, eroding the influence of local governments, replacing hostile judges, and smoothing the way for his allies to purchase influential media outlets. Corruption in the Trump administration wasn't nearly as sophisticated or comprehensive enough to rival Hungary's. Compared with its kleptocratic cousins in other countries, it was primitive. Companies and other interest groups simply pumped money into Trump properties. As they sought government support for a merger, executives at T-Mobile spent $195,000 at Trump's Washington, D.C. hotel. When the Air Conditioning, Heating, and Refrigeration Institute wanted the administration to support an international treaty that helped its member firms, it paid more than $700,000 to host an event at a Trump golf resort in Florida. The Qatari government brought, bought an apartment in a Trump-branded building in New York for $6.5 million. Such examples were so commonplace that they ceased to provoke much outrage, which per, was perhaps the gravest danger they posed. Ever since the funding of the Republic, revulsion at the mere perception of public corruption has been a bedrock sentiment of American political culture one of the few sources of bipartisan consensus. But fidelity to Trump required indifference to corruption. It was impossible to remain loyal to the president without forgiving his malfeasance. By the end of Trump's term, Republicans had come to regard corruption as a purely instrumentalist concept, useful for besmirching rival Democrats, but never applicable to members of their own party. With the confidence that it will never face opposition from within its own ranks, a second Trump administration would be emboldened emboldened to hatch more expansive schemes. The grandest of these plans, at least among those that have been announced by Trump's allies, mimics Orban's bloodless liquidation, where loyalists replace nonpartisan professionals and career civil servants. By instituting a new personnel policy called Schedule F, Trump could eliminate employment protections for thousands of tenured bureaucrats, allowing him to more easily fire a broad swath of civil servants. 
the mass firing of bureaucrats may not seem like a monumental opportunity for self-enrichment, but that will be the effect. The old ethos of the civil service was neutrality. Tenure in government deliberately insulated its employees from politics, but the Trumpists have plotted a frontal assault on the ethos, which they consider a guise for liberal bureaucrats to subvert their beloved leader. It doesn't require much imagination to see what this new class of bureaucrats might unleash. Picked for their loyalty, they would exploit the government in the spirit of that loyalty, handing government contracts to friendly firms, forcing companies who want favors from the state to pay tribute at Trump properties, using their power to punish critics. The United States isn't a post-communist state like Hungary. It doesn't have state-owned firms that can be lucratively privatized. But the Biden years have remade the contours of the government, unwittingly generating fresh possibilities for corruption. With the infrastructure bill, there are enormous contracts to be distributed. With proposed new guidelines for antitrust enforcement, which aim to empower the Justice Department to aggressively block mergers, the government can more easily penalize hostile firms. While in office, Trump's reportedly experimented with this by pressuring an official to block AT&T's merger with Time Warner out of his antipathy towards CNN, which would have been part of the new mega firm. These were policies designed to promote the national interest. In the hands of a corrupt administration, they can be exploited to enrich hackish officials and a governing clique. Autocratic leaders of other countries will intuitively understand how to seek favor in such a system. To persuade the United States to overlook human rights abuses or to win approval for controversial arms sales, they will cultivate mid-level officials and steer development funds towards Trump-favored projects. Some might be so brazen as to co-develop Trump properties in their home countries. According to an analysis of his tax return, Trump's foreign holdings earned him at least $160 million while in office. Such buying of favors will not be particularly costly by the standards of sovereign wealth. In aggregate, however, they could massively enrich Trump and his allies. It was just such a scenario in which the virus of foreign interest imperceptibly implants itself in the American government that the founders most feared. They designed a system of government intended to forestall such efforts. But Trump has no regard for that system and every incentive to replace it with one that will line his own coffers. Having long used the language of the five families, decrying snitches and rats, Trump will now have a chance to build a state worthy of his discourse. Franklin Four is a staff writer at The Atlantic. He is the author most recently of The Last Politician, Inside Joe Biden's White House and the Struggle for America's Future. Well, that's all the time we have for today. This has been Susan with The Atlantic. I hope you've enjoyed today's readings from the audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana.